You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mobbing While Muslim Podcast. This is Osma Jaffrey. As you can see, Zeba Hassan is off today for a fall break with her children. Um, and we are going to miss her, but we're so glad that she's getting her mommying time in because as of the publishing date of this recording, we will be entirely swept up in our retreat that she has been organizing tirelessly and she deserves a little pre-break. So uh, I hope she enjoys that. I wanted to talk about a very interesting situation because the roles were kind of reversed. I think we talked about um, people losing their temper and which parent does it more. And I admitted probably, I think it was last week or maybe the week before with our guest that it's usually me who's the belligerent parent, and my husband is a calm one. Well, the table's turned, and uh, I'll give this as a teaching opportunity for how teenage brains work. So our new 13-year-old wanted to make those microwave mac and cheese cups, right? And kids don't read directions these days. I remember I read directions all the time for everything on every box. and I was a label reader like my whole life. Even just eating cereal, I would be reading the label on the box because that was just me. But I have found that my children do not like to read directions. It's probably a personality thing and the way that they learn thing. So didn't read the directions and I'm studying downstairs uh, suddenly I hear there's a fire and there's smoke and I go up and yes, indeed, the microwave is smoking. And the first thing I did very calmly just looked at my 13 year old was like, did you put water in the mac and cheese cup? And he's like, oh crap. <laughs> so I explained to him like, this is why we read labels as I was cleaning up. But my husband comes in freaking out because of course the house reeks of nasty, disgusting smoke. And he's worried about, we've all inhaled a bunch of cancer from the carbon. And I'm like, dude, you you eat nacho cheese dip out of a out of a can. Like I would worry about that more than I would worry about what happened in the microwave. But he was the one losing it, which is literally the fourth time in 16 and a half years that he has lost his, you know, cool. And I I was just shocked. Like, wait, what's going on? You know, like the whole front frontal cortex, like a third of this kid's brain is not yet developed. Why are you freaking out about this of all things and not he forgot to load the dishwasher like I freak out? But, you know, it's just a matter of priorities and different things trigger different people. For him, it was how could you be so dumb? And I'm like, he's not being dumb. He actually didn't do this on purpose. He didn't realize that this is what could happen. But guess what? He's never going to forget. And harping on it isn't going to teach him any better just calm down. It's just mac and cheese. But um, that's not to say that it worked. It took several hours for my husband to deescalate and the house still smells like smoke and it's been a week. But subhanAllah, everybody is safe. Everybody's awesome. And I, your girl, was able to keep her cool. So I just wanted everybody to know that and that to go down for the record that I was the cool parent for once. So that is my up to date for you guys. We are in the meantime, continuing our series on domestic violence awareness month. So we want to talk about transitional homes. Uh, we used to call them shelters. I don't know if transitional homes is a newer term and more PC, but we're going to talk to our guests about that today and get educated. Uh, when people specifically women find themselves in unsafe domestic situations, they need spaces where they can have shelter and time to get their stuff in order and figure out what they're going to do, what their next steps will be to 
basically build a new life. So this is where transitional homes like Nissa Homes comes in. They have eight transitional homes across Canada. They provide security and hope for Muslim women who have suffered from domestic violence. And we can't be more honored to have the director, program director of Nissa Homes herself, Yasmin Yusuf, here to tell us about the services that they provide and why transitional homes are such a huge need, particularly in the Muslim community. So Jazakallah khair for coming and Assalamualaikum Yasmin. Thank you for having me. So we usually like to kick off the podcast by asking a little bit about your momming story, whatever you're comfortable sharing about your kids and your momming philosophy. Sure. Yeah. So I have two uh, young boys. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, and uh, they are um, quite a handful. Yes. <laughs> yes, <before. laughs> I'm so the two-year-old is taking a nap right now and, and uh, he's like right next to the room. So I'm really hoping he does not wake up. Uh, in case you hear him crying throughout the the podcast, uh, (laughs) he's here, but yeah, I think, um, um, you know, you're talking about like, who's the calm parent and who's the, I'm, I'm definitely the calm parent. I'm definitely the parent that's just, you know, um, I want to take it easy. I want my kids to have fun. I want them to, you know, learn. I'm not, I can't say I'm a gentle parenting. Uh, I'm, I I don't know fully what that is, but I'm definitely the one that's just (laughs) easygoing. Like, okay, he made a mistake. You know, let's move on. My husband, um, who's a psychologist is very much so into, no, like, you know, he did this, we have these consequences. This is how we teach them this. And, you know, and, you know, you have to say no, you have to teach them. It's okay to like hear the word no. And I'm just like, but if it doesn't harm, why not? Why not? (laughs) It's just candy. (laughs) (laughs) If it's going to keep them happy, it's going to keep me happy and and we're good. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But on a more serious note, um, I think raising boys is very, uh, it's, it's a, it's very scary. I've, you know, I, I, young, when, when I was younger, I, I did want to have boys. It was like, you know, I just, for some reason I was like, I want to have boys. When I grow up, my kids, I want to have boys. Um, and now that I have boys, I'm constantly thinking about like, what is the world going to turn them into? Um, and, and what are they going to be influenced by? And, you know, who, who's going to be around them and how are they going to shape who they are? And, and just a lot of it has to do with social media, of course, and everything that it tells you in terms of, you know, if you do this, this is going to happen. If you do that and you have to respond this way and, and it's, it's overwhelming. Um, but at the same time, you know, given the work that I do, I see the consequences of not raising boys well, and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's for me, like the biggest thing I want my boys to, to grow up, to be respectful, to be good Muslims, to treat everyone around them with respect, whether they're man, women, you know, rich, poor, it does not matter. And I, I, I feel like that's the, the core, you know, growing up for us, it was really important to get good grades and, you know, to do well in school. And I made it really clear to my husband, I was like, you know what, I don't care what they do in school, as long as they're good people that's all that matters. As long as they have good manners, as long as they're kind and good to the people around them, that's, that's all that's needed because we have too many, unfortunately, people that are not um, living with those standards, unfortunately. Right. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. It speaks to my heart because I say the same thing since my kid was like, you know, around three, they all want to be garbage men. So I was like, I mean, I want to be a garbage man when I grow up. I want to be a ninja garbage man when I grow up. And I was like, dude, be the best ninja garbage man you you can be. Like do that job like with pride and with excellence, be happy, but most importantly, be kind. 
So that's kind of when they went to school, that was the last thing I would say to them is like, be kind. And they'd be like, okay, I roll. But, you know, um, I see it now that my oldest has started high school and he's like, oh, there's this person and they're kind of, they sit alone at lunch. So I, I try to make sure I go sit with them because none of the other people in the classes do. And I'm like, I'm so proud of you. Yeah. And he's like, well, sometimes it's me on me. Like I'm the guy <laughs> sitting by myself. <laughs> and I'm like, so, you know, it's good that you're doing it for somebody else. And maybe mm-hmm. they'll see the example and come sit with you when you're alone. Exactly. So I, I'm, it, it will pay off. I promise you. So you're making a very good investment um, in their emotional intelligence right now. So kudos to you for that. So tell us a little bit about your family background and how that informed the work that you get in, you do now. Yeah. Um, You know, I can't really say I grew up wanting to do this kind of work. I, you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, the typical immigrant family, you know, just, you know, go into medicine or law or uh, business or, you know, when all else failed, failed, they were just like, okay, just go into marketing. You know, at least that's got a bit of the creativity, but it's still got some of the business. And when I couldn't do that either, <laughs> and I started at that point, I started looking into, uh, I said I was volunteering. This was in university, of course. Um, I started volunteering, I started getting into, you know, the student union at my university and getting into, you know, social justice and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and a lot of it, obviously, as a visible Muslim woman, um, woman, uh, it, you know, I, it was a big part of my life, whether I liked it or not, you know, having to deal with um, discrimination, having to deal with, you know, systemic barriers and all that stuff. So, you know, it's it's something you grow up with, you don't really think about too much, it just kind of becomes our norm, unfortunately. Um, but when I started kind of looking into that, when I was doing a lot more social justice work, and, and I come from a family that's very much into social justice, you know, we we uh, um, were originally from Egypt, but very, you know, very active. There was a lot of activism growing up. I used to go to protests with my family. I used to, you know, mm-hmm. when things happened in Palestine, you know, we were always out there doing stuff. You know, my parents really pushed us to always volunteer and always, you know, wherever they would go, they would take us with them. And to the point where, yeah, like there were times where, um, you know, we'd have police ask us, why are you doing this? And, you know, question us. I remember the first time I got questioned by a police in Egypt, I was, uh, I think it was like 10 years old, maybe or something. Um, so just very much so aware of like my social location and, 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 you know, just things that are going on. Um, so when I got involved with the social with the student union, it really it really spoke to that side of me, and I, I really felt like I I want to be doing things to help people. Um, marketing is not helping people. I don't want to help a corporation. I don't want to help you know someone get richer. I want to be helping people who are not who don't have the opportunities, who don't have the resources. And of course, you know, as a Muslim woman, I mentioned you know it it just clicked for me that I want to be helping those who've gone through experiences like mine or even more difficult. Like I, I am still privileged. Alhamdulillah, you know, I, I, I you know, had an education. I came, I come from a, um, you know, a, a good family and, and things were okay at home and all of that stuff. So I, I do have a lot of privilege and I wanted to be able to give that back because I also know what it feels like being, you know, marginalized when it, what it feels like being a Muslim woman. So I think that kind of started me down this path where I wanted to work with Muslim women. I wanted to kind of give back um, and do things that would, you know, help others around me. Um, and then slowly things, subhanAllah, Allah's plan always works out better than, you know, our plan ever does. And things fell into place. I, I look back now, I'm like, I could not have planned this myself. SubhanAllah, there's no way I could have planned it to work out this way. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses people to do certain things. And, and, 
at the time I was I was finishing university. I was getting married. My husband was involved with um, the organization that started Nissa Homes, and at that point, I was going I was going back to school to study social work. And um, he was just like, you know what? If you're doing this, why don't you volunteer with this organization? And I was just like, oh, like it's my husband's thing. Like, I don't want to. One more like, thing to do. I know. I'm, like, I'm, just, I'm going back to school. Like, just give me a break, you know. And I, he kept like he kept on, you know, telling me just just give it a shot. Just just call her. Just you know, here's her number. Just whenever you can. They're doing such great work. You know, they really could get. You know, they could use your help. And I put it off for months, like months. And when I finally made that call, um, I was like, oh, you know, and, and at that point, they had just started talking about Nissa Homes because so the organization is called the National Zakat Foundation. And what they do is they collect Zakat locally and they give it, you know, they give it back locally. And what they were finding was they were getting a lot of single women, a lot of single moms applying over and over again. And their assistance mm-hmm. is short term. It's, you know, just a, like, a couple hundred dollars just to kind of get you out of a tight squeeze kind of thing. And that just was not meeting the needs of these women. Um, and, and, you know, seeing these women apply over and over again, they started to think, OK, well, what can we do to fix this problem in a more long term, sustainable way? Like clearly giving them the money is not working. So what can we do to kind of help them? you know, give them money, but help them in a more substantial way. And that's when the idea of Nissa Homes came about. And that's when, you know, we did research, you know, we, we looked into what models exist, whether it's a shelter, a transitional home, and, you know, we can talk about the differences about uh, between the two. Um, And that's kind of, that was like, as they were doing the research, that's when I started getting involved. And I just, you know, I was volunteering at that time. I was just like, okay, you know, use me however you want. I want to, you know, I want to help out. Um, and slowly, you know, this home started coming about and, and that's when I started, you know, I, I got a job with them and, and they're like, okay, well, if you're going to help out, you know, we want to hire you. And, um, yeah, here, this is where we are eight years, eight years later. <laughs> so Osma, I was looking at my 401k materials and getting a little overwhelmed. Oh, I know what you mean. It can look like chaos. And none of the choices were halal. It's kind of a disaster. You know about the amount of funds though, right? Wait, no. What? Well, if your plan has a brokerage option, it's likely you can choose them through that, but you can also invest directly with them. They're halal? You bet. They're the oldest and largest Islamically acceptable funds in the U.S. Sharia certified the whole deal. We want to thank Amana Funds for sponsoring this episode. Here's what you need to know. Please consider an investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain this and other important information about Amana Mutual Funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus, please visit www.amanafunds.com or call toll-free 1-800-728-8762. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Distributed by Saturna Brokerage Services Incorporated, member of FINRA and a wholly owned subsidiary of Saturna Capital, investment advisor to the Amana Mutual Funds. You know, the thing that sticks out to me there is that your husband pushed you to do this because um, one of our, uh, one of the reasons that this particular series uh, on domestic violence came to our podcast was because we're so disappointed in the Muslim men, like literally heartbroken that they have so much power to change this globally, to change this. 
but they don't do it. Um, and you know, uh, Texas women's, uh, foundation was on, they were our first guests on and they were like, no, no, we have really good male allies. There are good men out there. We have another gentleman coming, um, from, uh, Masjid board as well to kind of defend men because we're like, dude, we're, we're, we're putting it on the table. Like we don't trust you anymore. Come on. Um, and I'm, I'm hearing it's just really gratifying to hear that your husband pushed you to do this because that was not an environment that most of us grew up in. Uh, and we can talk about that later, but you did touch on something important. That is the difference between transitional homes and shelters. Can you explain to the audience what that is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also want to go back to say another point about this, but I, I'll come back to it. But the difference between a transitional home and a shelter is that shelters are more for the emergency first response kind of thing. So someone is is literally on the street, getting them into place right then and there, whatever the time may be, 2 a.m., 10 p.m., it does not matter. That's what the shelter's for. It's very low barrier. You call, okay, you know, we have space. Okay, come right now. And, and this is the address. So that that's what a okay. shelter is, like that immediate quick response. Anytime, any any situation, as long as there's a bed available, you can come. That's that's essentially what a shelter is. And, th- and there are a few, maybe a few different um, requirements. Let's say there's a women's shelter. Obviously, they won't accept men, you know, that kind of thing. But for the most part, it's that, okay, if you meet the, this general criteria, you're homeless, you know, we have a bed and you're a, a female in, in this, like a VAW shelter, whatever it may be, then you can come in. Whereas with us, with a transitional home, you can come in directly, but a lot of our cases usually come from the shelter. So once things have like you know, calm down to some degree at a shelter, they would then come to us as they're starting to transition back into society. They're starting to transition back into independent living. That's what we're there for. That's where, you know, we come in to help them with that process because there's a couple of things to it. It takes a lot of time to find a place. You know, it's not, you know, a shelter, the stage is usually around two weeks. No one can find a job, find, you know, get income, find a place in two weeks. You're barely still figuring out, okay, I just left my home for you to start thinking about, okay, now I have to like, you know, figure everything out in my life. So it takes some time. It takes time and, and it takes time to heal also to be ready to start doing these things. And so having that time in a transitional home where it's, you know, you know, a shelter's got a lot of high security and, and there's guards and there's all that stuff. Whereas with a transitional home, it's more independent style living. You know, yeah, they share a facility, but you know, we're not there 24 seven, we're there every day, but they get to live on their own, they get to take care of themselves. You know, there's still that stigma. I think that's one of the reasons also why women don't go to domestic violence shelters is, you know, that stigma. Forget about the fact that they're so overworked and full. Um, It's what will people say if I go homewrecker, we've talked about it a lot. But you know, if somebody wants to volunteer now, I feel like things have changed 20 years later. Like you could go and not be called a homewrecker. I was a single woman at the time. And my parents were like, you'll never get married. If people find out that you're working in a domestic <laughs> violence shelter, like that kind of, yeah, it was like, everything was going to prevent you from getting married. Like don't think so that, you know? So what would you say to volunteers now um, who want to come to Nissa Homes to volunteer? Like what roles can they play? And, you know, what has been your experience in hearing about, you know, them from the community, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I want to say we don't hear those things anymore, but we do. Unfortunately, we still do. Yeah, like, oh, you know, why are you breaking up families? Like, you know, you don't, we don't need to do this because, you know, we don't need to get divorced. Like, you know, it's, it's not something that we need to worry about, even though like the woman will literally be on the street with bruises and they'll still say, no, you know, go back. 
Um, mm. So we still hear that. We do get a lot of people that don't want to work with us because, yeah, you're breaking up families. And we're like, do you, do you understand that people that come to Nissa Homes, it is their last resort? You, you understand that they're on the street? I'm, and I'm not going and knocking on people's door and telling them, hey, come to Nissa Homes. Right. They're coming right. <laughs> to us because they have, it, like, they're not even coming to us when there's a problem. I wish they would because, you know, then we can prevent the issue from getting to that point. But they're coming to mm-hmm. us when there's no other option. They're just, you know, things have gone to the point where it's not a mar- marriage anymore. It's not, there's, there's no safety. You mm-hmm. don't consider leaving your home unless it's that bad. Um, right. And I think a lot of people don't understand that, that it's not by choice that they're leaving. It's they have no other choice and that's why they're coming. Um, mm-hmm. And so... I do think that we still like, alhamdulillah, you know, compared to when we started. So we started in 2015 and I compare how um, it was when I would try to work with the masajid or work with community members. And, and I would literally have people as I'm talking to them and explaining the project, just turn around and walk away. I've had literally that exact experience happen to me multiple times. And I would just, you know. I, you know, I thought maybe it was me. And then, you know, I start slowly started to realize it's not me. It's the issue, right? It's, it's they don't want to deal with this concept. And, you know, the, the, the amazing thing, though, is that, alhamdulillah, these same people that would turn around and walk away are now the ones calling us and telling us, hey, we want to work with you. Hey, here's some money so we can help you do better and do more. So things have changed a lot in the past, you know, I would say, five, 10 years, I feel like we've gotten a lot more in terms of awareness, a lot more in terms of, you know, understanding what's going on and talking about the issue. Um, And I feel like that's also helped with volunteers. That's helped with us being able to get more people to support it. And the, the, you know, the saddest part, to be very honest with you, is that a lot of the volunteers that come to us have experienced it in some way, shape or form, not maybe not directly, but a family member, a friend, uh, a cousin, a mom, um, you know, a daughter, anything like that. So many of them and, and some of them have experienced it themselves. But I would say pretty much everyone that volunteers with us volunteers because it's, it's something that's touched their lives. And they want to try and help others because maybe they couldn't help at that time or they tried to help. And Nissa Holmes was how they got that help, you know, different ways like that. And and I would say, alhamdulillah, we do have a lot of volunteers. Like, I mean, people are, are ready to help and they want to help and they want to do more. And, you know, I, I don't know what the conversations are at home, but I will also say going back to your earlier point about, you know, men not doing enough, 100 percent, I, I, you know, I think if, if we did a better job in terms of talking about these issues and, and have men, you know, they don't need to lead the conversation because at the end of the day, if we're talking about, you know, women's abuse and we're talking about women, it should be women at the forefront. But we need our men allies, right? And and I will also say, though, that a lot of the success of Nissa Homes is because of these male allies. Our biggest donors, our biggest supporters are all men. Um, mm-hmm. And I always like to give this example, especially when I'm talking to non-Muslim media. I'm like, you know, a lot of times we we criticize the Muslim community. Oh, you know, um, men oppress women in Islam and all that stuff. But I'm like, I'll give you the best example. We have a shelter or a transitional shelter for Muslim women that is that was funded up until recently entirely by community donations, entirely 100 mm-hmm. percent community donations. And a lot of it was coming from men. So. I understand that maybe they're not saying enough and they're not talking about it enough, but when it counts, the money, you know, they're literally putting their money where their mouth is. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I, you know, I I do obviously recognize that we need to do more, but I, I appreciate that so much because we would not, 
we would not be here. We would not be able to do what we're doing right now without those men and without their contributions, without their support, without, you know, there's so many male allies that are truly out there helping us and, and trying to spread the word and referring to us. And, and you know, they're, they're the ones that tell me, you know, just be careful with what you say, because, you know, the, the reputation Nissa Holmes has is that it's breaking up families. I'll be like, oh. okay, you know, I, you know, I, well, I'm not even saying anything. I'm not, <laughs> it's the, the yeah. fact that we exist. Can we just all print flyers that say the women are not the ones that broke this home? You know, the person who threw the punch broke the home. Like, you know, exactly. can we just, can we plaster that all over the massages so that exactly. people get it? <laughs> I don't know what else to do. Yeah. It's nuts. It's nuts. Victim blaming, like, Like the perfect example of it, right? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about um, community-funded transitional homes. Um, I think it's important for people who are listening to understand like the groundwork that it takes to establish a transitional home. So what kind of moves, if somebody in a community that doesn't have a transitional home but realizes the need of it, like what are the first steps that they would have to take? What's been your experience uh, with Nissa Homes? It might be a little bit different because it's Canada versus the U.S., but I don't think it's that off. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. Especially, I mean, if I tell you kind of these points, you, you'll like it, it can apply anywhere, basically. Okay. Um, so alhamdulillah, we are in the process of opening our ninth and 10th homes. Um, I would say have, mashallah, but I'm really sad that we need I nine know, and it's 10 bittersweet, homes, right? right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's the unfortunate, mm-hmm. unfortunate part. But um, here we are. Um, so, you know, we've had a lot of experience with how to open, how to do the groundwork and how to like get started. And, and our 10 homes are across Canada. So we've literally had to go into places where we don't have any, you know, presence and, and start building a team and start, you know, um, figuring things out. And, you know, I would say the first, the first step is to do the research, research, right? You need to establish the need. You need to know why is this needed in this community? What is that need looking like too, right? Am I looking at, um, issues regarding just homelessness and poverty? Am I looking at issues regarding a lot of new immigrants? Am I looking at issues just, you know, with, uh, you know, a certain speaking, um, commu- you know, community, like a community that speaks a certain language? And obviously, you know, it goes without saying that, you know, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, it impacts every community, every religion. Um, there's no research to date that shows a certain community or certain religion or a certain culture that experiences more than the other across every major religion it's about 10 percent obviously right. knowing that also most people do not report it so the numbers are often higher than that but at least the reported numbers around 10 percent across all major religions um mm-hmm. and i think the only f- very few um Factors that kind of correlate with intimate partner violence is socioeconomic status. Like we know the only thing that kind of is an in, can be an indicator. It's not, you know, if this is the situation, then, you know, intimate partner violence will occur. This was one, one of the big things that we found is that shelters were doing the necessary work, of course, but they were a one size fits all model. There, you know, you you know, this is the service we have. We don't care if you speak the same language. We don't care where you're coming from. We don't care, you know, what the situation is. This is our service. You take it or you leave it, right? And what we realized is that it's not working for our community, and and it's not working for a lot of communities. We understood that a lot of women are not going to the shelters. A lot of Muslim women, immigrant women, refugee women, um, non-status women were not going to shelters. Number one, because they didn't feel safe there. They didn't feel like they could. And then number two is because a lot of shelters have also, they won't help someone who doesn't have status, for example. So you have mm-hmm. those that are even more um, 
that are more in danger not getting the help that they need. So we quickly recognize these things from doing our research, right? We recognize it from speaking to different places and understanding what's going on. We spoke to women that have been at shelters and, and the horrific experiences they had. Uh, some had amazing experiences. This is not to say that shelters are horrible and, and all of that, but also recognizing that they are underfunded, they are under-resourced, and so they, they have to make cuts in, in certain things, right? And, and that includes, we had a woman that was staying at a shelter for, for weeks without a single person speaking her language. And she couldn't even work with the she couldn't even work with the staff. No one spoke her language. They didn't have money to get interpreters. So she was not doing anything. For weeks, she's just sitting there. And then we've had other women that have had, you know, blatant Islamophobia in these shelters from the staff, but also from other clients. We've had women that have their hijabs pulled off. We've had women that weren't given food in Ramadan because it was after dinner time and the kitchen was closed. We've had women that, you know, they, they were made fun of for doing wudu in the in the washroom. Um, or women that, you know, we had a woman that had someone literally pee on her prayer mat. So very, very bad. We've had women that have garbage thrown at them. Uh, and these are all true stories that I've personally heard. Um, we've also had women that when they reach out for help, they're told like, you know, it's it's because you're Muslim. Islam says you can, you know, the husband can treat the wife that way. So it, the solution is you have to leave Islam. Or why are you complaining? You're the one that chose to be Muslim. And so if you're experiencing, you're already experiencing the biggest problem you've ever experienced you're in your life. You're leaving your home. Exactly. You're leaving your home. You're leaving your family. You might even be leaving your kids behind. Everything you hold near and dear. Do you really think that this is the time for you to be telling me Islam is the problem too? The, the very Probably the very few things that I have with me is my culture, my religion, my identity. And now I have to question that too, that I know versus a difficult situation I don't know. It's, you know, yeah. a fear of the unknown, right? And so... These are things that, you know, you need to do the research to understand. You need to, you know, we, we actually got researchers that, um, and every time we, we launch a home, we, we have a survey that we do. We have, we collect all the resources in the city and we start going through them one by one and gathering as much data, as much information, as much anecdotal evidence even um, that can help us make the case for, okay, why is this needed? And what does the need look like? Step two is building a team, right? You can't, you know, we, we, we don't work on our own. We can't do this on our own. This work cannot be done, you know, individually. It's, it's a community issue. And, you know, I, I always like to say it's not a woman's issue. It's a community issue because this impacts the impact of intimate partner violence is not just on the woman. It is on the husband, um, it, the abuser, it is on the kids, it is on the family, it is on the, the neighborhood, the community. Everyone is impacted when something happens. And you need to have supporters. You need to speak to the messages, speak to the local organization, speak to who, whoever will support you in, in starting this up because you're going to need money. You're going to need to start, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we started with volunteers very, very early on. But the minute we started doing the work, we were employees. We were hired because you have to make sure that, you know, we're, we're talking about people's lives. This is not something that you can do voluntarily. You need people that are committed and dedicated and getting paid. And, you know, there's timings, there's shifts that, you know, there's structure to it. It's not just, you know, let's help out when we can and when we feel like it. And, oh, right. I'm busy today, so I can't come yeah. in today. These are people's lives, like I said, right? You know, yeah, they are they're putting their trust in you. You need to be able to meet. Um, you're telling them that you can help. This is in a manner that you've given them. You have to help. So, yeah, we, employment we creates accountability in the staff, and I think yeah. a lot of communities don't realize you've got to pay 
pay something to get to something. To get the service. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm exactly. not a social worker. I don't know how to do any of this. Like I need to go find a social worker mm-hmm. and ask her not to do a second job after her first paying job, you know, to help our community members for free. It's not reasonable to do that. Exactly. And, and you know, she, she'll that. start off, she'll start off wanting to help. And we all do, right? We all do. How many volunteers? All of us. How many times have you volunteered and got busy and stopped, right? Yeah. It's the nature of volunteering. You know, when you can, you do it. When you can't, you don't. So right. it, it cannot be that way. It has to be. This is, you know, um, it's not it's not a food bank or, you know, even a food bank, I would I would say you still should have employees. But <laughs> it's not it's not something where people are coming and going. It's people are there all the time. You cannot mm-hmm. um, flake out and to coordinate the safety and all this kind of stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, placement and housing, employment, exactly. whatever training, whatever it is you're doing takes a Counseling. lot of work. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Counseling, um, childcare, you know, I'm not going to just trust anyone with these children, right? You know, they, they have right. to have qualifications. I'm trusting them with vulnerable children. So um, definitely there, you know, there has to be qualifications. They, you know, obviously, ideally, they're all social workers, but we don't have enough social workers in our community yet. Um, but right. you know, there, there's different fields and there's different opportunities. So, yeah, so I started with the research, with, you know, getting a team, finding your supporters, your allies, your funders. Um, and that could also be government funding, right? That's where I guess the government piece comes in. In my experience, in our experience, unfortunately, that has been challenging. Um, and there's multiple reasons. Um, social services are generally underfunded. Shelters are generally underfunded. Um, it's it's just generally, whether it was a Muslim place or, or anything else, it's very hard to establish something new. Most of the organizations that we have here that have shelters have been around for from the 50s and 60s when shelters first started. And so they've mm. had these funding contracts from day one. And so we're the new kids on the block that are just like, you know, starting and doing things differently and all of that stuff. So there's a lot of like, you know, we don't want to necessarily fund you yet. We don't know what you're going to do. So we started mm-hmm. seeing the funding rolling in now. Alhamdulillah. I, I like to say one of the, the good things that came about with COVID is that we started getting government funding. Mm. Um, but uh, of course, it's not the it's not the same level. It's not to the same level as other uh, shelters that are around. So but the conversation needs to start. So if you're if someone is serious about doing this, they need to start those conversations with their local politicians, with their local members, you know, candidates, members of parliament. And I, I think in the U.S. it's you know, members of the Senate or something. I don't know how it works in the U.S. too well. It's usually it's so like much. our local house and local Senate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, just start those conversations. Find your allies even there. Right. Find, you know, the Muslims, the women, the you know, the ones that are speaking about these issues and, and start speaking to them and start, you know, hey, we're working on this. Is there funding opportunity? opportunities. And, and I would even argue that for the funding, you need someone who's a professional grant writer, someone who knows how to write these grants, right? It's, it's, you're competing with people that have 50, 60 years, you know, over you. So you need to have good grant writing skills. The three major things that you're saying is to do your research, build your team with plans to employ them. And then three, um, seek government allies, um, to pursue government funding in particular for this. It takes time, but, you know, leveraging, leveraging the connections and leveraging, you know, whoever you can find that is willing to talk about it and to help you raise money and, and, you know, do that. And, and alhamdulillah, I think we're at a point where it's very different from when we started. And like I said, in 2015, I know it doesn't seem like it's that long ago, but, you know, 
they didn't even have these like online platforms for like fundraising. Yeah, we didn't like, have launch good. Yeah. No, no. So it was a very much like literally I would call up people. I would, you know, speak to people, speak to family and speak to friends, I, you know, just one by one. But it is the most effective way to raise money, just the personal connection. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Good to know. Dr. Sadaf Lodi, an American born certified OBGYN, is talking about everything sex related woman, mother, Muslim. She talks about the birds and the bees and everything in between. No shame, no judgment, and no topic is taboo. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. What projects is Nissa Home currently working on and um, what assistance do they need or what potential helpers can step forward to um, see those projects to come to fruition? Yeah, yeah. So um, I talked earlier about how we have, you know, these two new homes in the works, inshallah. Our, our Halifax home is... Uh, is in the works, inshallah, should be open within a week or so. So uh, literally right before this, uh, the podcast, I was, you know, texting um, my colleague just to kind of get things done. They're painting the home there right now and stuff. So we're working on that. And then we also have our Hamilton home, which is the 10th home opening up next month. Um, but the fact of the matter is, and I, I mentioned this earlier, we, we can't keep up with the demand, right? The, the bottom line is that um, I can build homes from now until next year. I can, I can have, you know, I can open a, ho- a home every single day and I still will not meet the demand because the demand far outweighs the supply and the resources available. Um, and I'll give you some statistics to kind of, you know, put that in perspective. So for us at Nissa Homes only, we receive about around 50 to 70 calls every single day, wow. every single day. And those, a majority of them, obviously not all of them need a shelter, but majority of them need help because of intimate partner violence in some way, shape or form. So that's 50 to 70 every single day. There's no way if I build shelters from now until next year, I I can't, I cannot keep up with that. I cannot have a bed for every single person that calls. Um, Alhamdulillah today, you know, we've, we've sheltered a hundred, a thousand, two hundred or so women and children. Uh, alhamdulillah, and we've we've assisted more than six thousand, more than six thousand women and children, um, who we could not shelter in our homes, but still needed help because you know our homes were full, or they were in a different city, or something like that. So the numbers are crazy, and I'll also give you another number. Um, so this is just in Canada. Um, in Canada, they found that around six hundred women and children are turned away from shelters every single day because there's no space. Not for any other reason, because there's no space. And that does not include every single day. And that does not include the thousands that are already in the shelters, right? So we're talking about, I think that the statistic was around 3,000 or something. I I think it was more, to be honest with you. I think it was 3,000 women. And then it was another 2,000 something children. So about 5,000 that are already in shelters every single day. Um, so the numbers are horrific. Uh, the numbers are really bad. And when I say that, you know, no matter what I do, I cannot keep up with that demand. This is kind of, you know, you know, to answer your question, what we're trying to work on now is prevention. What we're trying to work on is the education, the awareness, the community prevention piece, because ultimately, like I said, I can't keep up with the demand. I have to lower the demand. <laughs> that is that is really what we want to try and focus on right now. We want to improve community awareness. We want to improve the education. We want to start, you know, start at a very young age, establishing what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl, what it means to be, um, uh, you know, uh, what is manhood? What is, what is, um, 
what is toxic masculinity? What is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say? What was what was his example of being a husband, of being, a, a, you know, what was his example of, of his wives and how they were wives and all of that, using those as examples to start educating from a young age to combat the culture that we currently have, which is very toxic when it comes to both men and when it comes to both boys and girls. We really need to re, you know, just to fight against the, the you know, popular culture but even within our communities there's a lot of toxic masculinity there's a lot of you know you talked about earlier anything you do goes back to marriage that's the same you know that's how so many girls are right we're raised to like yeah. don't talk too much because then you won't you won't be able to get married don't be too educated you won't be able to get married don't, don't be too do opinionated and don't be anything <laughs> that was always the problem married, right and and so yeah. what does that do it you know a, a lot of times the girls just end up their whole life is around marriage i need to get yeah. married and when that marriage does not work out their whole life is over. And yeah. they that's why they can't reach out for help because they feel like I, the only thing I was supposed to do was get married and I could even do that. And so mm-hmm. we need to change that narrative. We need to change that understanding that yes, of course, I'm not saying we don't get married or anything. I'm saying we need to have healthy understandings of what good relationships are, of what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife and how to establish those healthy relationships with our families, with our friends, you know, and, and it starts at a young age. It starts, you know, the foundation of who we are now is built when we were younger. So we need to start it then, but we also need to start. I can only talk to the kids so much. I have to talk to their parents, right? So we need education for the parents. We need education around, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, the women that come to us uh, are, you know, they're facing abuse from their, from their parents too. They're not just facing abuse from their, uh, their partners. A lot of times it could be from their parents. They're not even married yet. Um, Or it could be from their in-laws. So we get that a lot, a lot, unfortunately, in our community. And so we need to educate the parents. We need to educate them what they can and can't do, what it, what, you know, how I should be as a parent and how the prophet was as a parent. And let's use those examples. And I like to keep going back to the prophet because that is the best example we have. And if we followed that example, if we followed the example of what he was like as a man, that is that we will have such a different community. Um, but unfortunately, so much of the abuse that happens is because we don't we misunderstand religion, we misunderstand the text, we misunderstand the, the verses, and we misquote them and we use them as ways to um, to further oppress and harm others. Unfortunately, so we need to we really need to kind of like explain things over again. Let's let's understand it. Let's you know look at it again and let's you know really understand what this means and let's clarify those misconceptions let's you know make sure that you know these men don't think that oh this verse is allowing you to do this or that or that you know islam says you can do this or that no this is what islam says this is what you need to be doing and we need to educate ourselves as a community also and that's you know all these are projects we're working on but one of the other things is we need to educate ourselves as a community of what to do a lot of times, you know, you know, we talked earlier about, um, you know, the, the recent um, murder homicides that took place. A lot of times, you know, in many of these cases, you'll hear that they reached out for help and they were turned away. They reached out mm-hmm. to their community. They reached out to friends. They reached out to family. They reached out to the masjid and they were turned away. And that is the result at the end of the day. Right. You're turned away. You're not going to be able to reach out for help again. We need to know how to respond when a friend, when a family member, when when anyone in the community, someone you literally see just at the masjid or someone you see at your kid's school, how do you how do you respond? What do you do to help? How, and and you know, I I also kind of say that we have a lot of people that want to help, they don't necessarily know how to help. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be very harmful um, because, you know, we get calls sometimes they're like, I saw this lady and I brought her to my home and now I don't know what to do. Like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I appreciate you wanting to help, but you know, that's what yeah. we're here for. Just call us. My family used to do home. that. <laughs> my family was one of those families that yeah. did that. And, you know, it was crazy because one of the times somebody was parked outside of our house and the homeowners association president noted it and was like, Hey, this car is parked outside of your house. It's not your car. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he called the police one time and the police, like, you know, was like, what are you doing? And I think they were just, they were looking at our door because they knew that that woman and her child were with us. Mm-hmm. And, um, when the police popped the trunk, they found one of those things that with the suction that you put on a door oh, to pull it off. Mm. Yeah. To get the like deadbolt off. Uh, and they couldn't arrest him because they didn't have any proof, but those guys didn't come after the police had shown up, but mm-hmm. you put yourself at significant risk and put your family at risk when you yeah. do that. And you put the woman at risk too. You know, it's great that you're trying to help, but you know, it yeah. doesn't always work that way. So a lot of education, a lot of awareness, a lot of, you know, even working with Masajid, our goal is to work with Masajid also to partner up with as many Masajid as possible so we can get that, you know, um, that message and that education out into the masjid where they, they have a community, right? You have the people that come to Jummah. Let's educate those people. Let's talk about it. And in, in, in whether we talk about it in the khutbah or we talk about after the khutbah or we have, you know, booths set up. In the khutbah. Or Our goal ideally, is to talk about it in the khutbah because then every single man has to listen. Yes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so we're trying to do a lot of that so that, you know, the education, the awareness is there. And then through that, inshallah, we can get more of that, um, more of the prevention so that the numbers can just get lower. So it's educational programming that Nissa Homes is focusing on right now, in addition to establishing these ninth and 10th homes. And um, for anybody who's interested in volunteering, because we do have a significant population uh, or portion of our audience in Canada. So thank you, Canada, for supporting us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But we'll have your links in our show notes so that they can reach out to you and see how they can help, whether it's with funding. Sometimes it's okay to be a check writer, but sometimes it's needed to be the mic holder. And I'm going to address that again to all of the men, like get on those mics, get in those members and start talking about the work that needs to be done in order to re-educate our families or pre-educate our families, as you've been Mm -hmm. saying. So, Um, This was all very important talk, but we want the audience to get to know you a little bit better personally, because like you said, this is very hard work. And had you volunteered, you probably would have um, burned out already, right? So we're glad that you're still here in the space. So let's make it light, bright, and fun. We're going to put 90 seconds on the clock for our rapid fire section. And so the first thing on the top of your mind is always the correct answer. So don't think too hard about it. Okay. (laughs) And it's okay to say you need more time. We'll skip it. We'll go to the next one. Okay. So I'm going to start. Bismillah. What book are you reading right now? I am reading Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Don't you just love her? Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. My alma mater. Yay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, she's so, so, uh, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why you love her. Um, so if there was any medal that you could win in an Olympic sport, real or fake, what would it be? Running. I used to do a lot Ooh. of track and field. Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I respect you a lot because I don't run on purpose. Even if somebody is coming well, at me with a gun. I completely stopped now. <laughs> Back in the day, you're a busy lady. I understand that. Um, so if there was an, uh, another career 
uh, that you could choose besides social work, what would it be? That's a good question. I would, I think I would love to have like a coffee shop. I, would, I think I would love to like have a coffee shop and just run a coffee shop. <laughs> oh, that sounds so awesome. Yeah. Right, friends vibes. Um, <laughs> let's see. What is something that surprises people about you? Um, I moved to Canada when I was 18. A lot of people are always surprised. Oh, you weren't born and raised here. No. Nope. Wow. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm really surprised. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. If there were, I like to ask this question. This is my favorite one to ask. If there's one dish that you could eat for the rest of your life three times a day, what would it be? It has to be a dish, right? It can be chocolate. <laughs> yeah, it can be a food. It can be a food. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a hard so what one. is it for you? Oh, that's a hard one. Coffee I think shop I'm, owner. <laughs> I know. I, probably sandwiches. Like just any variation of sandwiches. Oh my God. You are friends. Remember Joey Triviani's? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and educating us about uh, what transitional homes are and the work that they do. And may Allah bless you, reward you and increase you and Nissa homes, especially, but we are going to pray that one day we don't need you and you all go out of business. That is my goal. Um, That is my goal. 100%. Inshallah. Thank you so much for coming on today, Yasmin. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.